At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and former chief technology officer of cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, who is now the co-founder and executive chairman of the bipartisan Silverado Policy Accelerator that last week issued its six policy initiatives uh, on cyber for the coming year. The rollout included the chairman and the ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee's Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, Infrastructure Protection, and Innovation, uh, Democrat Yvette Clark and Republican John Katko, both of New York, as well as Rob Silvers of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI's Brian Vondran. Dimitri, welcome back and congratulations uh, on the new slate of initiatives. Thank you so much. Uh, and now a word from our sponsors before we start. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman, as we mentioned, sponsors not only this program, but our cyber uh, coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Dimitri, uh, six priorities uh, that I think have universal appeal based on what we heard uh, at your guys' uh, panel uh, discussion. Walk us through the six uh, priorities, and then we can take a little bit of a deeper dive into each of them. Sure. The first one, and I think the one that uh, most members are very excited about and are trying to get done, is really passing a comprehensive federal cyber incident reporting law, making sure that companies are reporting breaches that occur to the federal government to at least give the federal government situational awareness of the problem and who's targeting our critical infrastructure and other parts of the private sector. The second one is really about empowering the government to do better on cybersecurity, uh, second and third. Um, so it involves giving CISA uh, really the long-term vision to become what I call a chief information security office or CISO for the federal government, essentially giving them the operational role to defend the civilian federal government, excluding the DOD and the intelligence community, um, and not just be this advisor uh, advisor role um, and a little bit of a nebulous role that CISA has today. If it's going to be a cybersecurity agency, as its title um, uh, says, it needs to have that operational responsibility. And, and it dovetails into the third one, which is how do you hold agencies accountable for the cyber defensive work that they're doing today? And it involves, in, in our opinion, the use of speed and other outcome-based metrics to measure their response time to uh, dealing with cyber threats, intrusions, and vulnerabilities. Um, so critical um, um, priority to, to start measuring them and demanding that they report those metrics to relevant agencies, including CISA and OMB. And um, the other three really deal with um, uh, the DIB and, and um, the challenge um, that cryptocurrency poses to our nation uh, when it particularly comes to criminals using it for ransomware attacks. So let me deal with the dip first. Um, it's our last priority, but it, it's, it's certainly not um, uh, least important. Uh, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, um, uh, which I advised, uh, put out a great report back in March of 2020, right before 
COVID started, um, and one of the recommendations, key recommendations, was that executive branch should really uh, pursue a requirement for uh, clear defense contractors to enable the DOD to hunt on their networks for advanced threats, particularly threats that may be trying to get access to sensitive or, or even classified information that may be stored on unclassified contracts of those uh, the vendors. And that uh, recommendation was partially authorized in the 21 NDA bill, the defense authorization bill, but um, uh, it has really not been fully implemented. And we urge Congress to pass the necessary legislation to really fulfill the, the full intent of that uh, proposal. And the other two really deal with the fact that cryptocurrency overseas is completely unregulated. So you have domestic cryptocurrency exchanges that have to comply with know your customer regulations, anti-money laundering requirements, and foreign exchanges do not. So we believe that the executive branch should uh, have the authority to sanction foreign cryptocurrency exchanges that do not comply with those requirements and do not work with law enforcement. And similarly, we think that um, um, the, the sanction authorities, uh, particularly within the Treasury Department, the OFAC agency that maintains the SDN list, the specially designated nationals list, that is used to have kind of the full list of people that uh, are under sanctions to include not just names of individuals, because we know that in cyberspace, it's very easy to change names, to change um, company information, but to include actual financial data, like, like cryptocurrency wallets, like credit card numbers and bank account numbers to enable better enforcement of, um, of uh, cyber threats through that sanctions authority. So those are our six recommendations. There's certainly many more that we think um, should be um, enacted uh, over the years, but we think that those six are the, uh, some of the top priorities to really move the ball forward uh, in a significant fashion uh, down the field here um, in cyberspace um, as, as it comes to federal uh, government action. Uh, let me ask you about uh, driving that legislative change forward, right? Both Yvette Clark and John Katko talked about the importance of it. Indeed, uh, Brian talked about it and Rob also talked about how important the reporting requirement was. Uh, it was supposed to be in the NDAA. You're absolutely right. That was one of the key re uh, recommendations of the Solarium uh, Commission. And yet, unfortunately, Senator Scott of Florida and uh, the minority leader, uh, Senator McConnell, uh, pulled that out of the legislation at the last minute. How are you engaging with opponents? Yeah, and their concern was about the imposition of cost on smaller businesses. Um, this is is a concern, but it, it may be um, a, a bit of a canard, right? I mean, at the end of the day, these companies do have valuable intellectual property, and all you're doing is reporting it to the government, uh, as uh, 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 Brian pointed out, so that we can get the FBI coming and helping you or the National Security Agency or what have you. How are you engaging with opponents uh, of, of the move to make that case for change and why it's so important? Well, thank you for asking that question because this is actually a really important point. The irony behind this legislation is that at the end, they got everyone to agree to it, including Senator Scott. Uh, his concerns were alleviated through, through, through some negotiations uh, with the Homeland Security Committee staff. So you actually had bipartisan support for this bill, both in the Senate and the House, and they literally just ran out the clock of being able to insert into the NDA uh, literally by a matter of hours. Uh, that, that's, that's a tragedy of the uh, you know, complicated uh, process that we have in, in Congress to enact the legislation. Um, but, but of course, you know, the positive, if you wanna look at, at it from a positive perspective is you now have a bill that has broad agreement between Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. 
drivers and house members that just needs a vehicle to pass. Now, I do want to mention that the FBI, um, in, Brian Vordenen, uh, who uh, runs the cyber division of the FBI, has brought up um, uh, their concerns about this legislation, the current language that um, right now, as the bill uh, stands today, um, it requires reporting to go to CISA, which, by the way, the FBI supports. It, uh, it supports the idea that one agency within the federal government would be in receipt of this information, and they're okay with that being CISA. Uh, but what they want in legislation is for um, that data that goes to CISA to be immediately shared with the FBI and shared in full. Now, you had, and we actually broke this news in our event last week, the, the Department of Homeland Security, represented by Rob Silvers, who is the Undersecretary for Policy, committing publicly and on the record that the DHS will share um, that data in real time with the FBI uh, once, once CISA receives it. Uh, but, you know, the FBI wants that um, sort of uh, written in blood, if you will, uh, codified in law uh, to make sure that future administrations, future uh, political leaders do not uh, go back on this agreement. Um, and that's sort of their position. Um, we'll have to see how, how Congress responds to that and, and whether they'll be willing to reopen the legislation uh, to put that provision in. It could be a very simple provision, perhaps a, a single sentence. Um, that could be included to, to require CISA to share um, in real time with the FBI. But that's kind of where things stand today is that uh, we're very hopeful we can get something passed, given that you've, you've already had bipartisan approval and you just need something, perhaps a budget authorization uh, um, legislation or maybe the USICA legislation that, that uh, Congress is also trying to pass uh, for uh, combating the threat of China. Uh, to attach this um, uh, this important law to, and hopefully they'll find something. Uh, hopefully, um, let's uh, talk about uh, CISO authorities. You know, you you mentioned that in order to turn it into uh, a chief information security officer, there needs to be an expansion of authorities. What are some of the specific authorities that CISA needs in order to be able to do a better job, or or to achieve uh, the the promise or the expectation of the uh, part of the government that actually does a better job coordinating uh, the nation's cyber defenses. Absolutely, and, and first let me address um, a question that your listeners might have because there already exists um, a federal CISA for the federal government, uh, a great individual by the name of Chris Darusha who currently lives within the OMB infrastructure and dual reports to Chris Inglis as a national cyber director at the White House. But he does not have an operational role. His role is very much a compliance role um, and uh, looking at budgets and, and, and checking agencies' budgets. So that's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about a federal CISO. We're talking about what every company understands when they have a chief information security officer within the company. That person and that team is responsible for securing the whole company in cyberspace. We do not have CISO in the marketing department. We don't have CISO in the engineering department. We don't have a CISO in you know, in, in the, in the um, um, uh, HR department, we have one CISO typically in the company, maybe, maybe the, you know, in certain cases you have uh, business units that may have uh, separate CISOs because they're run like essentially separate companies. But, but in general, you have one organization that's doing defense across the board. And that's what we believe we need to get to over the long term in the civilian federal government, where you're not going to have 100 plus executive agencies doing their own cybersecurity. We know it doesn't work. We know they will not right. be able to get the talent they need. We know that um, the standards are all over the place in terms of who's doing well and who's not. 
and um, they may not have the right strategies. You need one sort of throat to choke um, when it comes to civilian federal government that is going to run that security over time. And, and the way to do that in our proposal sort of over the short term is to do a trial where uh, we pick a small executive agency um, that uh, has not traditionally done well in cybersecurity and we turn over their security to CISA, obviously providing the authorities and the, um, uh, the, the resources that CISA needs to do that. And we see how it, it does. You know, if it's able to successfully execute that mission and dramatically raise the bar for cybersecurity across that agency, then you can have a model where other federal agencies can outsource their cybersecurity operations to CISA, turning into more of a shared service provider for cybersecurity across the government and, um, uh, and, and sort of go from there. Uh, but we need to do that trial now to define what, what does CISA, CISA look like in five to 10 years? Uh, because I think it's done some great work with information sharing, with engagement of the private sector, um, setting some requirements for the federal government, but that's really not enough. If you're gonna be a cybersecurity and infra infrastructure security agency, as their um, acronym spells out, you're gonna have to have that operational role. Uh, and, and that's been consistent with what we've heard, whether it was Suzanne Spaulding who did the job before Chris Krebs, uh, and then, of course, Jenny Shirley uh, doing the job uh, now, um, you know, in, in, an, in an administration that at least has highlighted uh, the importance of cybersecurity, right? Chris Inglis, uh, also now uh, at the White House, uh, along with Ann Neuberger, of course, uh, uh, you know, as, as part of the cyber team. Um, let me ask you about uh, you know, you, you are calling also, uh, right, if I recall, it's your number three um, um, initiative is uh, adopting speed and outcome-based metrics to measure agencies' response time to cyber threats. What what does that mean, right? Because, uh, you know, it, every so often we have sort of a, a corporate intent, right, that a business or, for example, a company like CrowdStrike might have and trying to impose it on the government, which can sometimes be a little bit problematic. What do you mean by that? What would you measure? How would you measure it? Um, and how do you use that purely uh, and objectively in, in terms of driving positive outcomes? Well, Bagley, I'll tell you this. Um, anytime I've run a large organization, I've always been a huge fan of metrics because if you can't measure something, you don't really know how well you're doing. Uh, whatever, maybe a business, a particular project, um, or your cybersecurity program. And I think one of the challenges we have had for so long in this domain is that we don't know how to measure success and we don't know what success looks like at an empirical level uh, when right. we look at the cybersecurity program, whether it's in the private sector or in the government. And um, you know, when you look at the government broadly um, and, and the amount of money we spend on defense, literally billions upon billions of dollars, it is mind boggling. And we're not today getting a whole lot for it. You know, when you look at the overall security and all the hacks that have been taking place just in the last year, year and a half with solar right. wind situations. So I fundamentally believe that we need to start measuring how well we're doing. Um, and the best measure that I've seen and I've been able to implement it are speed-based metrics where you are uh, focusing on how do you become faster than the adversary? How do you measure how fast you are detecting intrusion responding to an intrusion or mitigating the risk of a high impact vulnerability, how quickly you can patch or, or do other sorts of mitigations once you, you become aware of it. And the, the shorter that time is, the better off you are at defending against a whole slew of actors. And what would be great is if you take those three metrics and, and maybe there'll be others down the road and require agencies as part of their compliance process 
to report those metrics on a you know, quarterly or annual basis to CISA, to OMB. So at, at a minimum, we can establish a baseline of how well are we doing actually at this defense problem across the government and who is doing better than others? And how can we learn from what they're doing so that we can apply it more broadly across the federal government? So if we learn, for example, that the Commerce Department is doing a phenomenal job at mitigating high-risk uh, vulnerabilities, well, let's, let's go talk to them. Let's go learn what they're doing so that we can apply it across the State Department, across DHS, and, and all the other agencies. And we just don't have a way to either measure it or to understand who's doing what. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more because ultimately what happens is it becomes a, well, you just have to spend more money or you need bigger organizations or you need more organizations, any of which actually can be fighting against what you're trying to do, right? That it makes everything more complicated uh, and harder to measure and harder to know where to direct your limited resources. That's right. And the amount of money we're spending on this is mind boggling. Uh, you know, when you count up all the dollars within all the executive branch agencies, it, it, uh, it is in the tens of billions of dollars and probably more than all the private sector spends combined on cyber defense. And, and we're getting very little for it today. And uh, it's time we start holding agencies accountable based on empirical metrics. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to an issue that you have been uh, a leader on, right? Uh, targeting cryptocurrencies to fight ransomware. Uh, obviously, we know all of the uh, incidents that happened last year, uh, whether uh, the meatpacking incident, whether Colonial Pipeline, and, and those were just prominent ones. State and local governments were hit, universities were hit, health systems were hit. Um, and, and unfortunately, we want to believe that we are deterring them, whereas, uh, you know, you, uh, and I always hold this up in every show, Dimitri, that you were the guy who said, you know, it's, it's also reasonable that the group was never stopped. It just broke up of its own accord because they got a lot of money. They're spending that money and they'll reconstitute at some point and get back at it uh, again. Um, you want to bolster ex executive branch authority to sanction cryptocurrency exchanges. What are the kind of authorities needed? How is it we have to fight this problem on the cryptocurrency side, given that that is the currency that a lot of these groups are, are using? That's right. Uh, and I think it's uh, also about lay, uh, leveling the playing field. So there's a lot of concern amongst the, the crypto industry, understandably so, about any regulations that um, the government may uh, impose on them. But the reality is they already have a huge slew of regulations that they have to abide by because they're financial institutions by U.S. law. So all cryptocurrency exchanges in the U.S. have to do KYC, know your customer verification. So anytime right. someone signs up for an account, um, anyone that, that is listening and has signed up for a cryptocurrency exchange account knows that they will require you to submit your driver's license or your passport and other verification information to understand that you really are who you claim to be. The other thing that um, uh, they have to do is do anti-money laundering verifications and submit reports to the Treasury Department anytime they see suspicious activity that may look like money laundering. Guess what? Foreign exchanges don't have to do that. As a result, um, we have two problems. One, that these foreign exchanges have been abused by criminals, including ransomware gangs, to launder money, to, to collect uh, ransom payments, and the like. And also that um, they, they can operate much cheaper than their U.S. counterparts because they don't have all this regulatory um, uh, overhead that they, that, that they have to do. Um, and, um, and they can uh, get more customers because it's much easier to go through the registration process. So um, we think that um, the U.S. government should do two things. One, it should work with allies 
um, to figure out a way to um, institute um, uh, broad KYC and AML regulations that many of our allies already have. In fact, most of the world has adopted them for the traditional banking system. And now we want them to extend it into this cryptocurrency field. But two, for countries that don't work with us to, to clean up this um, global cyber ecosystem, to use the threat of sanctions against these exchanges um, to make them do the right thing, to make them um, implement KYC, make them implement AML, and make them work with um, uh, law enforcement agencies when they come to them and ask for information on specific transactions that they think are tied to criminal activity. Um, we think that threat of sanctions will be very powerful because these exchanges fundamentally need access to the global financial system because um, if you think about it, the only function that the exchange really serves is to exchange currency, right? Take a cryptocurrency right. uh, token and convert it into US dollars or euros and vice versa. And if they're not able to um, transact with the traditional banking system and have access to US financial resources, they will not be in business. So it's a very powerful uh, lever that we have against these businesses and, and, and that can help clean up the whole ecosystem because you're absolutely right. Um, we wouldn't have ransomware if we didn't have cryptocurrency. It is the oxygen that fuels the fire because it allows for this uh, almost untraceable collection of ransoms that criminals did not have before the invention of cryptocurrency. And by making it more traceable, by allowing law enforcement to peer through the veil of anonymity um, that currently exists in many of these cryptocurrency transactions, uh, we can have a tremendous deterrent effect on so many criminals, both in the ransomware space and, and many others. Um, I want to go to your last uh, two uh, recommendations before I also ask you about uh, how to better deter uh, Russia. Uh, obviously, a lot of concerns about 100,000 Russian soldiers invading uh, Ukraine uh, again. Uh, let me ask you about uh, the details, right? You, you want cyber-specific details on the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Controls. Uh, specially designated nationals and blocked persons list. I know that that's a mouthful, <laughs> uh, but um, why why is that element important? And what are the specific changes you want to see? Yeah, so the OFAC office within the Treasury Department maintains this SDN list, which is a comprehensive list of names of all sorts of threat actors, uh, countries um, and um, uh, uh, companies and individuals that the US government has sanctioned for one reason or another. Over the years, I believe the first time we actually did this was in 2014 in response to the uh, Sony hack. Uh, we have put a number of cyber threat actors onto that list that traditionally involved terrorists, involved uh, you know, war criminals and, and um, uh, people that are contributing to proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and the like. But for the last seven years or so, we've been adding uh, cyber uh, criminals and, and cyber threat actors from nation states to this list. Uh, but it hasn't been really effective because um, it's one thing to sanction, uh, you know, a company that is selling centrifuges to Iran. Um, and uh, it would be very easy, of course, for anyone that does business with that company to understand that they're on the sanctions list and they should not uh, work with them. It's a wholly different thing to sanction a cyber actor that is registering domains that is registering and procuring infrastructure, and they will not use their real name. So having a name on the list is not very, very helpful, but they will use 
uh, cryptocurrency wallets. They will use credit cards. They will use other financial information like bank accounts to buy those um, um, cyber in, uh, uh, to buy that cyber infrastructure like domains and, and servers. And putting those types of financial tools on the SDN list, we think would allow for much easier enforcement uh, of people that are already on that list. Um, uh, but uh, having that list limited to just names as it is today um, does not really work in cyberspace. So that's what that recommendation is really about. It's a very tactical one, but one I think that would uh, produce a, a quick and significant win for the government to make it much harder for criminals and nation states to procure infrastructure using financial resources that the U.S. government can ban. Uh, and I should point out that Yaroslav Vosinski, uh, was, uh, who was uh, one of the per perpetrators of uh, the Kaseya hack, uh, was uh, actually uh, arrested uh, last year. So, I mean, it's worth pointing out that, you know, we, we're so used to negative uh, cyber news every once in a while, uh, there, there is a positive outcome. Um, let me let me ask you uh, one last question about uh, your policy initiatives, and that's the last one, uh, Dimitri. You mentioned it at the at the top of the show uh, about threat hunting uh, on defense industrial based networks. Um, I want to ask you one last question and then uh, get to the broader deterrence question, uh, Dimitri. Uh, one of the things you want to require is threat hunting on defense industrial based networks. You mentioned it uh, at the top, right? It's your sixth recommendation. Companies have a tendency of being very reluctant to have the government uh, and government agencies roaming through their networks. How do why why is this a necessary step? But moreover, what's the right way in order to execute it uh, to get the goodness that you want out of it instead of triggering potentially more more problems than than solutions? It's a good question, and you know, first of all, I have to commend the dev because. Uh, some of the uh, largest companies, including those that are your sponsors, have been working very closely with the government for many decades, really, on this issue, sharing information, working hand in hand, and, and helping educate the government on what they're seeing. So I don't view this as the government coming in a, in a heavy-handed way to sort of mess up their networks, but really a partnership that these companies should embrace to work with the DOD, to work with Cyber Command threat hunting team, to continuously hunt on their networks in addition to what many of these clear defense contractors are doing to um, ensure that their security is up to snuff and, and they should really welcome it. You know, when I uh, was running CrowdStrike, um, one of the things that I always wanted to do is bring in third parties um, to, to do threat hunting exercises on our own networks, because even though we were doing everything possible to make sure that we're secure, we also wanted to, to, to check it and, and make sure that we're not missing anything. So I think the DIP should, should embrace that. And particularly the smaller companies that are not the sort of the big primes that may not have the resources, they should view that as an incredible opportunity to have basically free help from the federal government to make sure that the enemies of this country are not trying to steal our most sensitive secrets. Um, and and uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more because ultimately um, it is sometimes, right, I mean, very big companies get breached, but more often it's very small companies that actually have a lot of know-how uh, that are critical elements uh, of our defense industrial base. And a lot of the bigger state uh, and more nefarious state actors know to target uh, some of these companies that may not be investing as much uh, in cyber defenses ultimately as, as I think everybody recognizes that we probably should. Even if you use a metrics-based system uh, to, uh, you know, that you can measure it so that you're spending it in the right place. Um, you were uh, 14 or 15, if memory serves correct, when you uh, came 
uh, to uh, the United States. Dimitri, you were born uh, in the Soviet Union in Moscow. Uh, Russia, you know, everybody is dealing with how best to deter uh, Russia, um, not just against Ukraine, but but frankly, in cyberspace and elsewhere. Um, and it's almost self-evident that we are not deterring Russia because Russia continues to do everything it wants to do, whether it's uh, assassinations, whether it's um, you know putting 100,000 troops uh, to threaten Ukraine, uh, whether to do bellicose and threatening things to countries in the, in the Baltics. Um, what is the right way to deter Russia from your uh, standpoint? This is something that I've asked you almost every single time I've talked to you uh, because it's something that I'm very, very interested in. What are the best ways to do this? I mean, is this, as Vladimir Karamurza makes the case, to Magnitsky, the living daylights out of all the oligarchs, right? Because ultimately, you know, Western companies want Russian titanium. Uh, you know, banks want Russian oligarch money. Uh, you know, do you cut off the Russian oligarchs from using their houses in Palm Beach and Eastern Long Island and apartments in Paris, London and elsewhere? I mean, what's what's the way... Do you think ultimately that we do this, uh, whether in cyberspace or well beyond? Because I know you're a thinker who goes well beyond what's happening only in cyberspace. Yeah, I've actually been, uh, you know, a close student of Russian, um, not just history, but the uh, political environment over the last 20 years in particular, and the Russian military capabilities. And uh, you know, I predicted this in early December uh, on Twitter that I, I uh, grew very confident back then that Putin was likely to invade Ukraine before the end of the winter. And with each passing day, I, I just grow more and more confident in that assessment. In fact, the White House put out this week uh, a comment that they believe that Russia is ready to invade really at a moment's notice now. And I think the fundamental re issue really, and, and why uh, it's, it's really not gonna be possible for us to deter them, um, is that they care about Ukraine way more than we do from a national security and national interest perspective. Um, Putin views it, rightly or wrongly, but that's how he views it. Uh, as an existential security issue for Russia. Um, the idea that Ukraine would ever join NATO or become part of the Western alliance system, and you would have NATO troops, and NATO weapon systems uh, on Russian border, 400 miles away from Moscow is completely unacceptable to him. And by the way, I should say, uh, not just to him, but really from a whole cross section of politicians in Russia, all the way from the communists, on the far left to um, the nationalists on the far right and everyone in between, including liberal Democrats and, and, and people like Navalny that uh, you know, we would uh, probably be very happy with if they were leaders of Russia instead of Putin. Uh, on this issue, they're all aligned that they do not want to see NATO encroaching on Russian borders in the way that it has been over the last 20 years and that Ukraine and, and Georgia and Belarus are really red lines for them. And they're willing to go to war over it. And we clearly are not. In fact, President Biden has ruled that out as a possibility that we would fight Russia to defend, defend Ukraine. And the whole irony here is that uh, what Russia is asking for is guarantees on um, uh, NATO's um, expansion policy that NATO would not, would not include Ukraine. And in a way, we're basically giving it to them by signaling that we will not fight for Ukraine, which is, of course, fundamental Article 5 um, commitment that NATO has to its allies. Um, so we've already ruled out giving that commitment to Ukraine, which really means that we're not willing to um, accept Ukraine into NATO, but we're not willing to say those words. And it's not clear to me that the Russians would even accept those words. They're, they want what they're calling as ironclad, waterproof, bulletproof commitments. 
um, which um, they're just never going to get from us. Um, it's not politically doable. There's no appetite in Congress to pass anything of the sort. Um, so I think they're going to war over this. And, and unfortunately, lots of people are going to die. It's going to be detrimental to the security of the United States because we're going to be dragged more into uh, Europe and, and uh, deploying troops in Europe and other, other equipment in Europe at the time when we need to be focused on China and, and, and really pivot into China as we've been trying to do for almost the last 10 years and, and uh, not succeeding. And uh, yet every time we try, um, they drag us back in to quote uh, Al Pacino in The Godfather. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's really the tragedy of our foreign policy that we can't seem to escape this um, thorny problem of Eastern Europe that fundamentally is not central to our, uh, to our national security interests in the way that Asia is. But nevertheless, of course, we can't allow Russia to just stomp all over borders in, uh, in Europe uh, for the first time since, since uh, the end of World War II and uh, not suffer the consequences. So we're heading for some, I think, very dark times um, with um, a very likely Russian invasion and uh, a huge deterioration in, in the relationship between US and Russia. Uh, by the way, you mentioned the, the arrest of, of the ransomware criminals responsible for Kaseya and uh, colonial hacks um, that Russia um, executed um, last week. The timing uh, behind that is not an accident. This is ransomware diplomacy by Russia basically sending a signal to the United States that it can, in fact, uh, arrest uh, criminal gangs that operate on Russian soil that commit uh, cybercrime uh, operations against the United States. Uh, but it, of course, the subtext is that they are not going to do that. And in fact, they'll probably let these people go if there are severe sanctions uh, instituted on them as a result of Ukrainian invasion. So uh, and I'm afraid I'm very pessimistic on this. Um, it, it's really a tragedy of, of both countries not being able to come to some sort of resolution. I, I do think that Russia has some legitimate security interests here, uh, but um, what they're demanding is also a non-starter for us. And um, as a result, we may have war. Uh, I, I think that uh, ultimately, uh, uh, Dimitri, um, you know, the, the challenge in, in all of these things is uh, uh, how do you balance uh, engagement uh, with toughness, uh, especially at a country that looks at uh, the use of force fundamentally differently than we do, right? So our whole uh, inclination uh, maybe since the dawn of the thermonuclear age, uh, is crisis mitigation. Um, how do we negotiate this down? How do we have a conversation? Can we get, offer more transparency, right? I mean, that's what Wendy Sherman was doing uh, with her Russian counterparts, uh, whereas that often is perceived as a sign of weakness uh, by the other side, right? I mean, if, you were, if this meant something to you, you'd be willing to fight for it. And so once you take troops off uh, the table, uh, then it becomes a much more uh, difficult uh, and, and challenging dynamic. Uh, anyway, I don't know whether or not we'll make uh, progress uh, with uh, uh, Russia, uh, but I think that uh, with your help, we can certainly make progress on cyber. Thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on, Dimitri. Thank you so much, Vago. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.